Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. This week's special guest is Brian Brinkman of Osiris Media. You've probably heard Brian's name before since he is all over the place in the fish podcasting world. He's co-hosted Beyond the Pond. He is the current host of The Drop as well as The Ravine. And he's the producer of Undermine as well as 36 from the Vault. I'll have to double check, but I think I got it all. But the bottom line is if you've listened to fish podcasts over the past five years or so, Chances are you've come across Brian, whether you know it or not. During Fish's 2021 summer tour, Brian hosted wrap-up episodes of every run on live versions of the Helping Friendly podcast. Toward the end of the tour, he invited me to help him wrap up Fish's run at the Gorge, and speaking with him one-on-one was a completely different experience than what I'm used to hearing him host his podcasts. In either scenario, it's pretty clear that Brian is knowledgeable, he's educated, And he's really serious about Fish, but his ability to discuss the band goes well beyond their music. He's able to drift off the main topic at hand while still connecting different eras of his life, his personal experiences, other Fish shows and jams, and just his general knowledge to virtually any topic being discussed. He's a jack of all trades, and his brain seems to be firing at 100 miles per hour, all while discussing Fish. It's really something to hear. This conversation went on longer than we both expected, but I hope you'll agree with me that there is no wasted time at all. For today's episode of Attendance Bias, Brian chose to discuss Fish's performance of Ghost from December 30th, 2016 at Madison Square Garden. On a personal level, as you'll hear him tell, Brian was going through an incredibly difficult and traumatic experience at the time in his personal life, and this version of Ghost really the whole concert on the 30th of 2016, it acted as something of an oasis in the middle of a crisis. It's a compelling story, and the uh, the gem is outstanding, and it all came in an overall uneven year for Fish. So let's join Brian Brinkman to hear about his history in podcasting, the importance of U2's Rattle and Hum, and what it's like driving on a desert by yourself in the middle of the night as we discuss Fish's performance of Ghost from December 30th, 2016 at Madison Square Garden. Let's meet today's guest. Brian Brinkman of Osiris Media. Welcome to Attendance Bias. How are you? Thanks so much, Brian. I'm doing great. Great to be here. Right now we're recording toward the middle of September. Fish has just wrapped up their summer tour. Dick's ended a couple of days ago, and you have had a very busy summer, not just seeing Fish, but also keeping track of Fish and having a big podcasting world and a lot of responsibilities. How has your summer been? It's been good. I um, I made a career change earlier in the summer. I went podcasting full-time and took on a number of projects and have been focused mainly on Undermine, along with a few other things happening here at Osiris Media. And so it's been a very active, very busy summer. Um, I got to do a little bit of traveling, uh, see family, which was great, and then ended the summer with uh, three shows at my favorite fish venue, uh, Dick's Sporting Goods Park. And uh, we just released, as of recording, episode one of the second season of Undermine. So doing really well. Uh, things are things are falling into place where three or four months ago, it was all just kind of a bunch of ideas tossed up in the air. And we were hoping that we could organize them. So I feel I feel good today as we speak. Throughout the summer, you hosted a series of wrap-ups on the Helping Friendly Pod. Whenever Fish finished a two-night run or a weekend run somewhere, it was kind of a 
kind of a, a mid-tour check-ins <laughs> as we went through. Since you weren't at many of those shows, was there something that you learned? Because you had different guests from all over for each recording, including myself. Thank you for having me. Did you see any trends throughout the summer or did you see any sort of major disagreements, anything that stood out to you about the summer of 2021 while you were reviewing it in real time? I don't think anyone really had a, had a good grasp on what to anticipate from fish going into <laughs> this tour in, in tours past. It, it's always difficult. Sometimes you, you have a feeling based on past tours that the band is going to come out and, and continue the momentum and they change up a bunch of gear and a bunch of technology and they have a bunch of new songs and maybe the next tour uh, doesn't, get off to as, as, as high of a, uh, of a start or as, you know, it, it has kind of fits and spurts along the way. And so, you know, you kind of have to re reassess your own expectations and understanding of where the band is at. I think it's really hard after 18 months off to say, Oh yeah, fish is going to be great this summer or fish is going to have a hard summer. I assumed that they were going to kind of set the foundation and take their time getting settled in this tour. And I was completely wrong on that. And I was pleasantly wrong on that. I think that they came out, from for for as much uh apprehension as there were as there was around you know kind of the sluggishness the, the sound in some cases from the arkansas show i found a lot to be really interested in musically and i thought that by the moment that they got to alabama and especially started playing that Karenian in the second set you got a real sense of a band that was eager to be back on the road was really excited to be playing with each other and had a ton of ideas to get out, out the gates. Um, the biggest thing I would say I learned from seeing shows, I, as you mentioned, I covered shows throughout the entirety of the tour without having seen anything in person, seeing the way and hearing live in the venue, the way that Trey's new synthesizer, synthesizer pedals align with Paige's keyboards Aligned with this like ferocious drumming from John Fishman. Um, I saw it yesterday on Twitter from uh, an account that I absolutely love following that there's a lot to compare this sound in fish to where the grateful dead were between 87 and 90, this orchestral sound. And it comes across in the tapes, but it really comes across live when they get into these jams. There's not a lot of searching and there's not a lot of, wasted space it's a very full band that sounds like there's more than four people on stage which is just remarkable for them at this age it's so funny that you bring that up comparing recent fish to grateful dead late 80s early 90s in a small forum that i post on a fish forum someone brought up the question of 4.0 yet again you know is it 4.0 and that's not the focus of this conversation but a lot, you know, aside from the fact from from breaks, which seems to be the delineation, right, of our 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, I think this change into 4.0 is a is very musical. Other than the 18 month break that you mentioned, they just sound different. But I think when, like you said, when the Dead switched to a lot of MIDI uh, synthesizer sounds, it and uh, different keyboardists started kind of rotating in and out in the late. 80s and early 90s uh, with Bruce Hornsby coming yeah. in on piano. It opened a whole world. Yeah. And Trey's, like you said, his guitar effects with Paige's synthesizers that have been creeping in over the last five or seven years. We are in a whole new universe of Fish's sound, plus all, you know, all the new songs that Trey has written. 
Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I, I was thinking about it uh, as I was leaving the final show of the summer that, you know, how lucky we are in a sense to have gotten this sound, because if 2020 had not featured a global pandemic and fish had gone on tour, I thought that they ended 2019 really strong. I loved the new year's run. I loved the Mexico run that they were on. And I was really excited. I was going to see a bunch of shows in summer 2020. I think that we were just based on kind of where the trajectory was going. I think we were in line for a really good summer tour and perhaps fall, you know, who knows, we may have not gotten this sound that we got in 2021 without everything that happened as a result. We may have gotten a good fish tour. Who knows? Nobody ever will know. But the the cool thing about the sound now is that it's, and part of the reason why I'm on board with the 4.0, you know, the, the new era is we're hearing a band that had to go through 18 months of evolution behind the scenes and came out and played in a way that while there are similarities to what we heard from say 2017 through 2019, there's a lot about this band that seems just kind of dropped out of the sky. And if you were to put on a 2018 show versus this, you hear a very different band in a lot of cases. When people were talking about 4.0, I was firmly against it. I'm like, no, it wasn't. I was one of the guys who was, no, they didn't intentionally take this break. This wasn't a band decision using that line of logic until I heard the music. Then, right, right, right. then my mind completely flipped where it's, sure, well, yeah. without maybe we're the visitors, without the beacon jams, we wouldn't be here. It's totally. just the road totally. not taken. You know, now we are kind of reaping the benefits as fans were reaping the benefits of the pandemic, such as it is. Yeah, I think the other thing I would just add is, um, you know, you, you said, like, what other band is playing at this level going through this many evolutionary changes? I, I would argue that there's no band at Fish's level that that has ever really done what they're doing. Um, you can make an argument for, like, the Who and the Rolling Stones continued to tour into their 60s and 70s and now 80s. But, like, those were bands that were not, they, they reached an end point of evolution. And maybe they released a new album every five or six years. Yeah, but their end point was, like, 40 years ago. <laughs> exactly exactly like the only comparison i think you can find are like you know your smaller like a yola tango which is one of my favorite bands which continues to evolve which continues to push against like the norm of who they are as a band but yola tango is never going to draw thirty thousand people to a soccer stadium outside of denver colorado they're never going to draw fifty thousand people to a festival it's just not who that band is so to play to this many people and to be this important to the larger you know rock music touring world from just a financial and organizational standpoint and say that they're going to evolve and push against the norms and challenge their listeners every single show it's really unprecedented it's 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 fish and then there's no one else i agree that's that should be on the back of their tour buses there's fish <laughs> and then there's no one else you're originally from chicago but it looks like you've been all over the world, actually. Can you give us, in a nutshell, a little bit of your background and who we're talking to? Yeah, I grew up uh, southwest suburbs of Chicago, really nice little suburb. Uh, I actually grew up in White Sox country, but I'm a diehard Cubs fan. When I got to going to college, I, I knew I wanted to get out of like my my shell and kind of the bubble that I'd grown up in. And so I went to school in Western Montana, the University of Montana, for a couple of years and absolutely loved my experience there. Met a bunch of great friends, um, got a real taste of what it was like to live out West. Within college, I ended up doing like a study abroad program. I 
spent some time in Europe as well as um, parts of the Middle East. I was studying um, uh, I, I studied French history and, um, and and Islamic history, and so I was kind of fusing that during a study abroad program. I, I ended up moving overseas, lived in Korea in two different stints, uh, teaching English. And then in between that, I lived in Portland, Oregon with my uh, then girlfriend, now wife. And then we went back to Korea, did a bunch of traveling. We settled in Annapolis, Maryland. I had a really great job there. And um, at some point in the mid 2010s, had an opportunity to move out to Denver. It made sense. It got us back out West where we wanted to be, you know, in a larger city where there's a ton of opportunities, ton of sports, tons of music, like everything that I kind of want mixed with the Rocky Mountains are right outside my back door. So um, I, I don't see us leaving Denver, which is weird to consider with how much I bounced around between like 2003 and 2018. Growing up musically, let's talk a little bit about that because your one of your podcasts that you've been involved in, Beyond the Pond, mm-hmm. was very much about music discovery and taking people who had a certain tastes and talk about comfort zones, expanding those comfort zones by introducing them to something they may or may not like. You told us all the different places you bounced around while growing up in the world. What about musically? What did you grow up bouncing around with? So one of my earliest memories is uh, my dad took me to see U2's Rattle and Hum when I was like three years old. Uh, I was like running up and down the aisles, just like trying to impersonate Bono. Um, U2 was, (laughs) U2 was like my, they were my first favorite band. Um, I still stand for them. I I will defend even most of their worst albums, you know, to, to the death. I, I I absolutely love, love what they do Um, because if the artist wants to change, you should at least give them a shot and, and lean into it. And that, you know, 10, 10 years later, when I got into fish, was a really important thing, you know, for a band that is constantly evolving, that is never going to stand still. And, you know, if, even if you love, you know, 1992 fish or summer 95 or fall 97, that's a time and a place. And then they're going to try to evolve and change from that. Um, beyond that, like the Beatles, Bruce Springsteen, those were always on in my house. Um, as I grew up, I, I discovered a radio station called Q101, which, people of my age in Chicago will know was the alternative. Um, it was a great station. When I listened to it, they played, you know, I was coming to it like 96, 97. So it was the tail end of grunge. Uh, it was when a lot of imposters started to seep into uh, the world of grunge. I, I would say the best band that I was introduced to via this radio station was uh, Radiohead. Um, they, they were pushing like, uh, creep high and dry. They, they pushed uh, okay computer really hard on listeners. You would still get, you know, Pearl jam, smashing pumpkins, Nirvana, Soundgarden. Those would be, you know, thrown in on a regular rotation throughout the day. But like, for example, the, the 1997, at the end of every year, they would count down the 101 songs that were most requested on their station. And in 1997, you hear like a huge shift in where the listener base is going and also where music is going. The number three song was Walking on the Sun by Smash Mouth. The number two song was Semi-Charmed Life by Third Eye Blind. And the number one song was Fly by Sugar Ray. So like, you don't really think of those bands as like, quote, alternative when you look back at the 90s, but they were featured very heavily in that like post-grunge alternative world. you know, for me, I think the biggest thing I got out of that station was understanding 
again, like trusting new musical tastes, new musical ideas that were beyond where I was currently at. You want to dive deeper and actually understand like, is this band have depth and meaning? Is there more I can learn from here? And how do I support them? And so I learned that early on, but um, by like 2000, I was already moving beyond it. I was like you, I was rediscovering my dad's records. You know, I was hearing like who's next for the first time. And I was, you know, at that point in time, like Dave Matthews band crept in and that was when like the push towards jam bands began. So where did fish come in on that? So fish came in the following spring, 2001. Um, My mom of, of all people, I mean, she's, she's a very important figure in like my, my overall life, but also my musical life. She gave me bittersweet motel for my birthday. And I don't totally know what her intentions were. I'm curious um, about that. How does bittersweet <laughs> motel stick out? You know, when it could have been gimme shelter or it could have right. been at that time, I think the Rolling Stones rock and roll circus had been recently released. had just been released. Yeah. So bittersweet motel of all things, I feel like unless you knew you wouldn't know. <laughs> I wonder if she had been like marketed to that, like, this is similar. Like this is another band like Dave Matthews band. And I think she just knew I was really into rock music and was like, Hey, I think he might like this documentary. And I don't think she has, she had any idea. And I joke around with this to her all the time. Like, I don't think she had any idea what she was actually getting started. I, I'd heard fish. I'd heard the name fish. Um, they were always a, a huge mystery to me because there's no marketing. There's no music videos. You have to seek them out. And so I threw in the DVD and I remember the first song is Brian and Robert. It was the first fish song I ever heard. And um, I just remember being like, well, this is not what I expected. And really liking that, like Trey had oversized glasses and these guys are wearing <laughs> like khakis on stage. And like, you know, the, the shots of them in the bus, like they just look like normal dudes who are on tour. There's nothing, you know, blown up about them. And I, I'd been seeing bands that like, you know, there was an image that went along with it. And I loved that. It was just like four dudes that just happened to be playing music together. Um, and I watched that documentary religiously through the spring of 2001. And I just loved it. I loved, you know, the way the crowd responded to Wilson. Um, I loved, you know, the shots of the great, of the great went and like, just this idea that like, I looked up where limestone Maine was on, on the internet it was like, Oh my God, they played a barely find up it. There. Yeah. You can, yeah, exactly. That summer, I went to a summer camp and I was working there uh, as a camp counselor and I was wearing like a Dancing Nancy shirt one day early on. And one of the older counselors came up to me and was like, you like Dave Matthews band? I said, yeah. He said, if you listen to Fish, I said, ah, here and there, you know, I bought like a live one, Hampton Comes Alive. I bought Rift. Um, but, you know, those are not like looking back. That's aside from like a live ones are really good. Like this is who fish is, but none of those are like as immersive as it can get by any means. You're, you're just scratching in, like, yeah. And they're not as inviting as some other right, ones. Right. <laughs> I think they were just like what was available at Best Buy, but he gave me uh, a tape of 11, 17, 1994 set one. Um, and where is I that? That is the remember? hair arena in Dayton, Ohio. And I remember popping it in and the band opens up that night with only the only other version of Helter Skelter outside of the white album performance on Halloween, which is important because I said earlier, one of my earliest memories is seeing U2's Rattle and Hum in the theaters and U2 opens up with Helter Skelter. And so there was this instant connection to this really important moment in my life when I was younger. But whereas Bono leans into this earnestness about Helter Skelter, Fish does not. And they kind of, you know, they're, they're, they're off melodies and they, they do the blister on my finger, you know, closing to it. But I remember loving it. And I remember like 
the sounds of the crowd just responding so directly scent of a mule with a mule duel. Like it seemed like this crazy, cool, weird diversion midway through the first set. Uh, there was a divided sky later in the set. There's a Forbin's vibration of life, mockingbird. And like, that was just enough to get me to be like, okay, what is game hinge? I think I need to know more about this band. And then it closes, the set closes with just an absolutely ripping disease. It took a lot of energy for me to put on another band aside from fish during <laughs> that period in time. What was your first show? My first fish show was uh two twenty oh three at the Allstate Arena, which I, I still remember like the cutout, like my mom cut out the newspaper clipping of like fish returning, which when you think 20 years ago, how crazy it is that like, you know, it was, it was, it was that long ago that we uh, were still getting the news from newspapers rather than like getting it on Twitter or something. But I remember like I lucked into these tickets. I, I waited in line at like a Sam Goody or something sure. you know, as you, as you did back in the day. And I got tickets and I didn't really know where they were. I remember looking up online and being like, I think these are okay seats, but they might be, you know, I really wanted something that like I could see the whole band and I, I didn't want to be behind the stage, but you didn't really have any sort of an option then. Right. And to your earlier um, point, not, you know, it was yeah. about sitting at Sam Goody there. What not every venue had either a website or even a seating chart on their website, let alone websites. Now, I think there's one called like view from my where yeah. you could literally put in the section, the row and the seat number. And some it's like a crowdsourced collection of pictures of this is what it looked yeah. like when I went in the seat. So yeah. yeah, it's, you went in a lot to a lot of shows and a lot of situations kind of blind. I had a seat for like first row, right off the floor, just on the side of the stage, right next to Mike. And the, the only downside of that view was I didn't really get the full on appreciation of Corotas lights from an indoor setting. So um, I didn't totally get like what the lights do, but I did get to be very, very close to the band to see them communicating in what turned out to be a very jam heavy show. The way that you and I first got in touch was through podcasting. Can you give us a little bit of background of your history in the podcast fish world? Honestly, like it, it kind of begins like I, as a music fan, I was never really just like, I could never really just listen to music and like consume it. I had to kind of get my thoughts out as well. And and I started in 2009, uh, a blog called the suffering jukebox where I did album reviews. I did music write-ups. I, I started covering fish shows as I was returning to them in 2010. I did a bunch of fish shows upon my return from um, South Korea that, that year um, that blog kind of died in like, 2011 early 2012 i was i was cooking at the time uh for a in a restaurant in portland and i just couldn't really keep it up i started a new one when i went back to uh korea in 2013 and um it was called tackle and lines and i, I wanted to really like dive deep into kind of analytical focus on on fish history and i wrote a lot during that period in time and absolutely loved it and that was actually how i came upon uh rjb and the the helping friendly podcast they had found my blog and found a, a couple articles i wrote invited me on they had just started the podcast and were just looking for guests at that point in time and he and i hit it off and uh, i was on a number of like they would do hf pod live chats over google hangouts i think whatever the technology was at that point in time um they're still like on youtube and it's it's really weird to go back and, and watch <laughs> especially as we're like diving deep into like summer 2014 i knew as 
as, as early as 2015, I knew I wanted to start a podcast. I knew that like, I loved writing, but I felt like my skills could be better utilized behind a microphone. And I wanted to learn how to edit. And I wanted to be able to really just like seamlessly incorporate sound with whatever I was talking about. I felt like that would be the better way to showcase fish. So I started thinking about, you know, do like, what, how, how do I start a podcast? What, what do I need to do? Um, I didn't know anything about editing. I didn't know anything about structuring a podcast. I didn't know any of the like organizational stuff that goes into it around that time. Dave Goldstein and I started connecting with each other on Twitter. He was a big music fan. He and I loved very similar music. We both loved uh, the war on drugs. We both loved Steve Gunn, but we also both really loved fish. We root for opposing baseball teams and, and we're constantly like going after each other on Twitter when we were playing in the NLCS. We would meet in person in summer 2016. I, I knew like he was a like compatriot of mine when we met outside of Wrigley Field before the second night of the fish run there. And we both were like, yeah, it wasn't that great of a show. And, you know, you sometimes meet people in the community and you feel like you have to like showcase an, an overt sense of positivity. And I was really pleased with like his honesty and his criticism because, you know, I, I don't really go back and listen to those shows. And so I, I, I liked him like right off the bat, knowing that the two of us could speak honestly about fish and, and speak passionately as well. Um, we would kind of connect and bounce around throughout 2016. And we ended up meeting each other in a uh, um, line for a beer at, at coincidentally 1230, 16. And mm. I can't forget, I can't remember who mentioned it, but one of us mentioned that they were considering starting a podcast and they'd been in touch with RJ. I think it might've been Dave. And I said, you know, it's something I've been thinking about doing as well. And I just kind of blurted out, like, I, I want to do something that allows people who love fish to listen to other music. And he was like, oh, that's really interesting. I've been thinking about something like that, too. So we connected in the early winter of 2017. And by March, we had our first episode planned out. Uh, we were focusing on the uh, Camden Chalk Dust from 1999. Mm -hmm. I had We had no idea how to record. We, we both bought blue snowballs and kind of like winged it. We found this really bad service that would record Skype conversations. And it just like the audio was terrible, but we were like, okay, we can do this. And we recorded our first episode. And then I figured out over like a course of a week, how to edit it in a garage band. And then I finally was in a place where I was like, okay, I think that this is good enough to send to people. And we settled on our every other week schedule at that point and kind of just went off running and, you know, from there, I just kept trying to like pick up new tricks and new ideas and new, you know, knowledge about editing. I was, I was very, very much of a beginner. I relied a lot on Matt Dwyer, who is one of my colleagues at Osiris Media, who is an absolutely brilliant producer, would sit down with me every so often and just say, okay, you've got these things right. Here's the next things you should add. Here's the next things that you should do. Um, we were able to start getting guests that we really wanted on the show. And we were just in a rhythm and that went through the end of 2020. I want to say, I think that that was when we ended beyond the pond. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Toward the end of yeah. 2020, it was announced that beyond the pond and with you, uh, the helping friendly podcast and Tom's Tom Marshall's under the scales would merge and it would become what, what is now undermine King back at kind of the independence of beyond the pond is there anything that you feel you miss from closing it up? And 
anything that you've gained since then? Yeah. I mean, I would say like, from what I missed, you know, starting beyond the pond felt like everything. And if like every time I, we sat down to record an episode and every time I sat down to edit one, and every time we released one to Dave and I, it felt like the biggest thing in the world. I'm now at a point where like from a professional standpoint and from a financial standpoint, like you have to be focused on a multiple, multiple storylines and multiple podcasts at once to really make any sort of a career out of this. It's almost like having kids and watching them grow up. Like there's something about having like a, a two month old and like literally you are their entire world. And for that time being like, they are your entire world in a lot of ways. And then they grow up and like you, you, kind of recompartmentalize where you're both at in each other's lives. And so like beyond the pond was like, it was like the only child for me. It was, it was every, I threw everything creatively, you know, personally, professionally into it because I knew I wanted it to be something bigger than what it started as. And I knew that this was where I wanted to go with my career. Um, so like, I missed that, like, like, uh, Dave and I had a really good rapport and, and, and we got into a point where there were all these, you know, little Easter eggs and inside jokes that, I wanted us to get to that, like a good podcast gets to where, where you say like, you know, something two minutes into the episode and your core listeners get it. And so it, it's, it definitely feels like beyond the pond is was a thing and now it no longer exists. And there's something sad about that. But um, you know, in terms of things I gained, you know, a year ago right now, I was in conversations multiple times a week with RJ and Tom as we were planning out what would become Undermine. It was it was as early as July 2020 that the three of us met and said, from a business standpoint, we need to reduce Osiris to one core fish podcast. Um, I, I would say just one more thing. Like I, I, I feel like I went from, you know, like the minor leagues to the majors in terms of editing. I really, really had a lot of challenges with like stepping up my game from December, 2020 to February, 2021. But I had a lot of really good advice and a lot of really good insight, a lot of really great support from the team here. I took a huge leap in terms of my own abilities. And when I look back eight months, like the way I can visualize an episode coming together and actually put an episode together is totally different from what I was able to do eight to 12 months ago. And with your other podcasts, the drop and the ravine are both under the Osiris media umbrella. The one that caught my attention the most was the ravine. And yeah. it's, it's very interesting to me and correct me if you have a better way to explain it, but you yeah. present compilations of type two fish jams without any commentary, any context, almost no introduction, just kind of the sounds of a, of a river flowing like a brook and no summation, which is almost the complete opposite of this podcast. Cause to me, the special jam or what makes something great is the context in which it was played, right? Literally the bias that the listener has for it. So at some point, your podcast, The Ravine, it's almost like a planetarium soundtrack. I listen to it <laughs> when I walk my dog and I have no idea what's going on. Sometimes I could tell roughly what era it is just kind of based on the sound quality or the instruments that the band is playing, you know, page sound and Fishman, especially sound wildly different from like 1991 right. to 2014. But it just seems very spacey, very out there in a good way, because yeah. a lot of your other podcasts are very, are very organized. This one is completely formless. Yeah. That's, 
that's a great way to describe it. I, I, I appreciate you picking up on it. And that, that was kind of the point. In a lot of cases was um, I tend to be really analytical and, and there, there's a great thing. Um, Rob Mitchum, one of my favorite people to talk fish with. And, and he said that the constant challenge he deals with at a fish show is separating the analytical aspect of his mind of like, Oh my God, this is the first time they've played this and such and such date. Or I don't really feel like the band is on right now with that sensation of like surrendering to the flow and just allowing the moment to guide itself. That's exactly, and, that's everyone's that's right. I, at least mine. I speak for myself. That's, how I, am. that's yeah. how I am. Um, and so, you know, my podcast, like, especially beyond the pond really reflected that analytical side of, of me, where, like you said, it was, it was very, very organized around. We're going to talk about this jam. We're going to break it down. We're going to give comparables. Um, we're going to be critical, but we're also going to be self-referential. We're also going to be praising when, when, when needing, but we're going to be, you know, we're going to have a critical and analytical, analytical mind here. In the spring of 2020, I was listening to a lot of Aquarium Drunkard and WFMU um, and those two stations and websites like just drew where my interests were. And one thing I loved about those shows was they were, they had this freeform nature. They allowed listeners to kind of be immersed in this kind of unfamiliar world of strange sounds and musical ideas. And to me, it mimicked like a late night road trip where you're kind of driving through the desert and you flip on a station. You're like, I don't know what this is, but like, this will get me from point A to point B. It's funny you and say that I, because that's what you said on the teaser for yeah. the ravine. You know, I always listen to the teaser first of any new podcast. Yeah. And that's what you said. You know, you're driving on a late night road, it's dark and you're just kind of scanning through the local stations and you leave something on, even though you don't know what it is. I right. think you've definitely nailed that because to me, that's kind of what the bunny is. Except this, this version, the ravine is even less, even less for, formulaic. Yeah. You know, it's much more coming out of nowhere, coming out of left field. And even better, it flows right into the next one. You know, each gem is, it's not standalone. Every, it's like one gigantic blob of music with kind of this minimal membrane around it yeah. <laughs> that, you know, it's not literally the same piece of music. Yeah, I mean, I it's funny you mentioned the bunny because I I think subconsciously, like I thought about the bunny as well as um just like the from the archives series that Kevin Shapiro does. Um, I've always liked his radio voice and I've always liked that like yeah, he sounds like a guy who should be on radio, just like slowly walking you through, you know, whatever musical highlights you've heard. And he never really says too much. He lets the music speak for itself. And I have like a distinct memory of driving through rural Pennsylvania on the way to uh, Magnaball, listening to the 11, 16, 94 simple. And he, he didn't, I don't, he doesn't really announce what will be the next jam and from the archives. It's always a, you just heard this. And I remember hearing that simple and being like, trying to decipher in my head, what is this? Cause I'd only heard it once or twice. And that moment of kind of like being thrown off by fish was appealing to me because a lot of people who I look up to from a musical taste and musical curation standpoint, don't really listen to fish because they can't get past some of the songs. They can't get past the comp the, 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 the larger like compositions. And I felt like, what if you were introduced to fish just by way of their improvisation, just by way of their experimentation? Yeah. What if you were introduced to fish without knowing you were being introduced to fish? Yeah. You know, there was something like, like subliminal. Challenge. What if you took yeah. the label off of it? Right. Right. And, and so you know, that was kind of the, the origins of it. And, you know, the show, I try to keep it, 
to be, it's, it's really like my, my escapism within podcasting. It's really like, it's, it's the show I enjoy making the most. It doesn't, I could stop making it tomorrow and it wouldn't change anything for like my own career. It's really like a hobbyist type of approach to it, but I really love making it because I, I only do it well, like the week leading up to a recording, I'm just like listening to a lot of different jams and trying to pick out segments that, you know, really fitting for me. Um, but in addition to that, like I, I, I record, edit it all in one sitting. And it usually happens between like 11 PM and 2 AM on a night that I'm feeling particularly awake. That's, that's really the only hours of the night that like I can get into this thing. It sounds like really it, by the way. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of the goal is to like be in that place. So before we cut into the ghost from December 30th, 2016 and the new year's run of 2016, you have the floor because you have so many different podcasts and projects. I just want to give you in two minutes, everything you want to plug, everything you want to make the listeners aware of where they can hear Brian Brickman, or at least the influence of Brian Brickman. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I mean, obviously, yeah, we're recording this on September 8th right now. The Undermined Season 2 has just come out. Uh, we'll be in your ears for the next 10 weeks uh, up until just after the end of fall tour. Uh, I'm pretty hard at work on the season right now, doing a ton of editing and putting things together. Uh, we have most of the season in production right now to be completed. We we know where the story goes, where it ends. So I'm really excited for people to hear that. I'll be on the HF pod kind of weekly show throughout September as we look back on the summer tour, as well as do some kind of deep dives just to kind of Talk about older fish. Uh, I think it'll be something that we'll really enjoy. Plus, we'll we'll come back in the fall with those live recaps on uh, on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, let's see. The Drop is a weekly show that I host with David Goldstein. Uh, the Ravine we just talked about. We should have a new episode coming out here in September. It'll come out. The episodes come out on a basically a monthly basis, um, and then. The other project I'm working on, 36 from the Vault, uh, just wrapped up its third season. Uh, we have the fourth season, which will conclude the Dick's Picks series that will launch either late 2021 or early 2022. Um, those are there are a few other places I can be, but those are those are the main places where I I reside my time. I have a few projects I can't speak too much about at this point in time at Osiris that will be coming out this fall as well as early next year. But kind of at a point right now where my focus is undermine. Um, we're starting to plan season three of undermine and, and, uh, starting to figure out kind of where, where exactly I'm going to spend a lot of my time as we move into 2022. When was this show played? 2016 overall, when I look back, I remember it as being something of an in-between year, whereas 2015, I thought was the best year that the band had in 3.0 and 2017, might as well just be called the Baker's Dozen. And 2016 was <laughs> was in between. But when upon closer inspection, there was a lot of new stuff. There was a lot going on in 2016. They debuted a lot of songs that would eventually appear on Big Boat that was released in the fall of that year. They covered Ziggy Stardust on Halloween, which was the first return to a cover album in a number of years compared yeah. to Wingsuit, Fuego, and the uh, the Haunted House. Well, lots of set lists in 2016 included the songs off Big Boat. And as I remember it, often to the disappointment of the crowd, it took quite a while for some of those songs to grow onto the crowd, um, which is kind of how every new album, how it works, going all the way back to Hoist, I would say, if not even earlier than that. 
the New Year's Eve run was the typical 28th to the 31st at Madison Square Garden. Interestingly, each night of these four uh, shows opened with a an acapella tune, respectively, Star Spangled Banner, Sweet Adeline, Carolina, and Don't Bogart That Joint. Throughout these four nights, there were rarities littered all over. So Lonesome Cowboy Bill was playing, was played on the 28th, along with Karina. Peaches and Regalia and Holy Shit, Secret Smile was played <laughs> on uh, the 29th. In the I, middle of a Mike's groove, no less. Right. Yeah, that had to be intentional. Uh, Sparks yeah. on the show we're talking about today, the 30th, and Dope Bogart that joined on the 31st. I don't think has been played since, but I'll do a fact check on that one. And despite the fact that I didn't love all the shows I saw in 2016, the New Year's Eve run was pretty strong. There were some really good jams on here. I didn't realize until I looked back at the set list leading up to this recording that they held back on Big Boat largely throughout the first three shows. Now we know why with the benefit of hindsight. Yeah. And they had that very artful Petrichor performance on New Year's Eve with it raining. In my opinion, this show, the 30th, was a huge gift. It was by far the best of the run. And the opening sequence of the second set was tweezer into sparks, into ghost, and then light. And I flipped out. I completely remember where I was. I was with my girlfriend and her sister. We were on the floor at MSG and my brain just exploded about 10 times throughout those four yeah. songs. Even though yeah. you picked ghost, I have to compulsively listen to that whole sequence in order every time. Yeah. What is it that you remember from either 2016 in general or more specifically from the New Year's run or even just this show? Yeah, I mean, I think 2016 in general, it, it reminds me to an extent of um, uh, 2014 and 1996 the most, just in terms of you, know, you talk about a transitional year. And I, I think that, you know, the challenge with 2014 and 2016 is. I think with the benefit of, you know, five to seven years of hindsight, we can see that the band had really good intentions with what they were trying to do in those two years, but you're coming off of a really strong fall tour in 2013. And then I agree with you on this. My favorite tour of, and my favorite year of 3.0 is 2015 without a doubt that summer tour is some of my favorite music ever. So, you know, you get a band that is kind of forcing an evolution and the evolutionary changes that they're forcing upon themselves and us are not really clicking in the moment. And you get a lot of, especially in the summer kind of substandard shows where I think 2016 flipped in a way that 2014 didn't until later in the year is the Chula Vista tour closer. I mean, there, there's some good stuff throughout the West coast in the, in the, um, in the summer tour, but the Chula Vista tour closer holds up as a really underrated and fantastic show. And from there you go to lock in, you get what I would say is the second best Dick's run of the entire 10 years that they've played there. And you get this very high quality fall tour that leads into the new year's Eve run that I'm right there with you. Like the band is, feeling fresh, trying to throw some new songs out there. There's rumors flying everywhere that this band is going to play uh, 13 shows at the Baker's Dozen. I believe that this New Year's Eve run was the debut of Kuroda kind of taking over the house light system and being able to utilize that uh, within the, the, within the stadium. So I remember feeling really positive when I was, when I was on the bus from Baltimore up to New York to see these shows and, and, and really enjoyed them uh, all the way through. It's funny you brought up kind of forcing an evolution. When I was reading down that 
quick synopsis of 2016. This was also the year that Fishman first jumped on the Marimba Lumina, which was also not very well received in general, from what I remember. And also that very strange lighting backdrop that had the screens going behind the band. Yeah. Yeah, it was. uh, I remember I saw them at Wrigley Field, which were the second and third shows of the tour, and I had previously seen them Alpine, Merriweather, and Magnaball of 2015. And those three runs are three of the, my favorite runs I've ever seen with the band. And kind of from minute one that I walked in and saw this like new panel and saw like the thing that, that, you know, hooked around them. There were a lot of debuts during that first set. The second set featured a really good disease and twist, but there was definitely like, and they do this sometimes where they had such a strong year and it was like, well, we don't want to fall into a rut. So we have to force a change. And sometimes it just doesn't work in general, you know, in 2009, when they came back with time turns elastic, that is a risk, a a multi-part composed piece that lasts what 21 minutes or, or 17 minutes. If it doesn't go over with the crowd, it feels much worse than it really is when you listen back to it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. It's one of the things I love about them. It's it's, I think I said it earlier, like one of the things I, I really appreciate about following fish is they will take risks knowing that there's failure. That's an option. And when they fail, the fan base reacts in a very you know critical manner. So where were you around the new year's run 2016 as a fish fan? Well, why don't we get into like where, I, cause the, this jam kind of plays a part in kind of where I was at at that point in time. Why don't we All do right, that? Let's do it. This ghost, you could kind of feel the confidence and the energy from the crowd, uh, which was loud during sparks. You can feel kind of the afterglow of that bust out. I was so jazzed up. I'm, my favorite band is The Who, other than Fish. And I never thought I would ever hear Sparks live, ever. I thought it was a relic. I know they played it at Dick's a number of years before this, but that was like a special occasion. That was because yeah, all the totally. songs had to start with S. But I thought it was a relic of like 1993. So I thought, you know, I'm going to go to my funeral completely at peace, having never heard Sparks because they don't play it anymore. So I was, <laughs> I was in the heavens already. If the show ended right after that, all was good, but you could feel the glow after Sparks ended. You asked like early on, like kind of where I was and like, it all kind of goes into place with like where I was at when this, this ghost started really quickly stepping back. So I I was supposed to go to the Dick's 2016 run. I had tickets for it. And um, my plan at that point was 
I was going to go out to Denver. I took a week off of work. I was going to go to um, the fish shows and I was going to look for neighborhoods for my wife and myself and our son to move to. We were planning at that uh, or at, at that point in time to move to Denver. Um, three days before the Dick's run, um, my wife had gone into the doctors and, and had been diagnosed with breast cancer. And it was this like shock moment for all of us in, in a lot of cases, we were 10 days out from having a one-year-old and no idea what the next couple of months of that years of our life looked like. And so I remember selling my tickets to Dick's and I remember watching those shows, but as we moved into the fall, we just had a lot happening at home and, and it was constant doctor's appointments and chemotherapy and all that. And meanwhile, that fall, my favorite sports team, the Chicago Cubs are playing for their first world series since 1908. And so I remember the fall I was, I was scattered listening to fish shows kind of whenever I could. And, and it was kind of like, if I had like a, a, an off 15 minutes, I'd listen to a couple songs and then I'd, you know, pick it up. So I wasn't listening to like shows in full, but I knew just like what I was seeing, what I was hearing from people that it was a really strong run. And as we moved into the winter and as my wife was wrapping up her, her chemotherapy, uh, my parents reached out to me and said, Hey, we'd love to come and take care of Susie, uh, my wife and, um, and your son and let you get like three days off and go to New York city. Uh, my brother was going, my brother-in-law was going, a bunch of my best friends were going. And so I got tickets to these three shows, the 29th, 30th and 31st. And I went up there kind of knowing I'd been through like four months of, of hell and I didn't yeah. know how much more what a we gift had with this it. sounds like unbelievable gift. And, you know, it was, it was a recognition in a lot of cases for my parents of like, you're, you're going through something you probably shouldn't at this point in time. Um, let's give you a couple nights to just like take care of yourself. I had friends who had points at like the W hotel in times square. So we stayed in like <laughs> relative luxury. It was, it was ridiculous. You know, it was, it was like, everyone kind of came together and was like, okay, you've, you've been a caretaker for four months now. Let's, let's give you a couple, couple nights off. So I went up there with that mindset and, you know, like the 29th, I was on the floor. It was my only time I've ever been on the floor at MSG. It's a fine show. It wasn't like the, the greatest show. The 30th though, in hindsight, is one of the best days I've ever been alive. I, I woke up, I took a run through Central Park, just beautiful, crisp winter day in New York, met up with some friends, went down to Chinatown, had just like amazing noodles, went back, got like a good nap in, met a friend at the Gingerman just off, just near MSG, had great beers, had great food, went in about 20 minutes before lights, met up with my brother-in-law, my, my brother, and his friend were trying to get tickets still. They got tickets about five minutes before lights, and they just happened to be in the section just over from us. We were Mike's side about 11 rows off the floor. And then another one of my friends was able to stub down to that same section. So I had really good buddies all around me. The first set of that show, I don't think people realize because nobody talks about it. It's a really good first set. I remember that Wilson set. closer just blew me away. Wilson and then Yem. You know, yeah, Yem right. Closed, Wilson, yeah. Right, right. Which like it was one of the first times they'd played Yem in the first set in, in a long, long time. I don't remember the exact uh, last time they had done it, but it was it was rare to hear Yem in the first set. It was just really good song selection. It was great energy. There was an amazing gin. Blazon had a ton of energy. Um, so anyway, so as they come out for set break, you know, they open up with Tweezer. 
it's a really good tweezer that doesn't get as much attention because of what came later. But then to your point, when they started Sparks, I was like, I was taken back to the first time I heard Live Fish 07. Me too. Um, yeah, Me too, you know, exactly like, <laughs> And I was like, oh my God, this sounds like old fish. And then Ghost starts and Ghost is one of my favorite fish songs. It's probably, it's in my top five favorite fish songs. I'll, I'll hear it at every show and be happy about it. Um, and so at that point, I'm surrounded by close friends in a very emotional trip seeing fish. You know, I, this is a very emotional experience coming to Madison Square Garden. And they start playing one of my favorite songs midway through the second set. Around three and a half minutes, Trey starts to slow down a little bit. And maybe this is yeah. my my association. To me, it sounds a little bit like Deep Purple. Maybe it's a little close to Smoke on the Water. It's yeah, far from a tease. Yeah, all right. Because I don't know if it was just me, kind of my free association brain when I listened to it. I was, but that's kind of how it starts to me. is quite prominent in the mix i'm listening on fish.in and then when page shows up mike kind of gets drawn out almost like he's being called out fishman is holding it all together in the back and that lasts until about five minutes the beginning of this jam is really an all-inclusive thing you know pay uh, trey starts with power chords but he's not necessarily the center of the sound each member is right. very it's very egalitarian yeah yeah i hear that and it kind of to me like this is this set to me feels like the the earliest preview of the baker's dozen where the band is now you know there's a magic on december 30th um it's my favorite fish date of the year um you know it 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 seems to just bring something out of them when they know that there's a certain percentage of the crowd that is anticipating a huge show on december 31st and the band is going to you know, push uh, their creativity on the 30th. And it really tends to happen. Um, and it has pretty much consistently since this show that the 30th has been the standout show of the run. And I, and I hear just in this egalitarian jamming, like a band that knows, because they probably had already booked it at this point in time, that in six months they're coming back to this venue and they're playing all of these concerts here. Yeah, 1230 is kind of the high holy day of the yes. fish calendar year. I used to say December 29th, but that's, of course, attendance bias. That was the date of my first show at the Garden in 97. So I feel oh, like nice. never miss December 
29th. But I would say I would admit under torture that the 30th has kind of overtaken that in terms of reputation and a certain mantle of if you had to pick one show to see over the New Year's run for musicality, it would be the 30th. And then like a lot of great ghost gems, about five and a half minutes, they're playing what I described as musical peekaboo. They get very quiet. They go down and just one member or another will just kind of stand out for a half second. And then they kind of retreat back into this mush until a little after six minutes, they hook up again all together and it's low and dark and they start building up again. It's kind of that like early stage of these like amalgamating jams that we we would we've been hearing for the last five years now where you know the band is like you're saying like they're 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 working as one unit and they're just seeing what happens if we go high what happens if we go low are we all together and on the same plane here yeah they all dip their toes in the water and to get somewhere really high a really high peak they have to start super low like you just said By eight minutes, Paige really takes the lead. There's some ferocious piano playing right there. And eventually it kind of is a throwback to 2015, a year earlier, and it gets very blissful. It's very major key and pleasant to listen to. Yeah, you get to like, one of the things I love about this ghost is it follows a lot of like hallmarks of early 3.0 ghosts and then it doesn't. And, <laughs> and you know, it like, there was there was a point after they played the the Holy Ghost, the, the December 30th, 2010 version, where it felt like for a number of years, every single time they got into Ghost and didn't have an idea about where to take it, they just went to like D major and brought it just, just home with this peak. And I, I never found it as satisfying as that initial version at um uh, at MSG 2010. This version kind of starts to go there and then figures its way out of it. And when it figures its way out of it is when it really gets interesting. Yeah. When you bring that up, there's on fish.in and fish.net is listed as there's a mountain jam tease at about 10 minutes. I don't hear it personally. I don't hear it. I don't hear a mountain jam. I'm right there with you. Part of the other reason I love this jam, and we'll get into this here in this segment is I hear elements of my favorite grateful dead song 
And uh, it, I heard it at the show. I've heard it ever since then. And it's, it's, it's a part of my absolute love for this, for this jam. Is that this sort of riff that Trey hits at about 11 and a half minutes? There's this riff that he's toying with. And I don't hear a Grateful Dead song, although the minute you say the title, I'll probably say, oh, obviously. yeah." Uh, but the crowd, you could hear it on the recording at 11 and a half minutes. Trey hits this amazing nerve, this riff that he keeps repeating, repeating, repeating. And you hear the whole place go into liftoff. sure that you're the same way with this like and this is part of the point of your podcast like i have a very very distinct memory of where i was at and kind of time stopping when he hits this riff um you know it's funny because i thought about when 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 we were talking about doing this recording uh, you mentioned like okay think of a jam that meant a lot to you in the moment and you know i went through a few jams in my head and like the acdc bag from coventry came up um there was a couple from magnaball that came up there was uh the ghost from dicks last year 29 or 2019 that came up but i i keep coming back to this ghost because i, I literally can like close my eyes and i can see these like purple lights on tray and it's kind of from behind so it looks like the band is like moving forward and he's leaning forward and just kind of rocking back and forth and he plays this riff that to me it's not a direct tease by any means but it sounds like he's toying with the grateful dead's the wheel which is my favorite song by the grateful dead and and it sounds ethereal it's it's like you're just floating in space listening to them and i remember like he plays the riff once he plays it twice. And by the third time he has it down the rhythm, he wants to play it with. It's totally in conjunction with the band. And that moment you're speaking of where like the crowd rises up and you hear every single person in the audience acknowledge what he's doing. 
Um, it's just com- like, I get chills thinking about it. It's, it's, it's the moments that we go there for that going into the show, they could have played all of these songs and not found that moment. And it still would have been a great show, but because he found that it's something that wouldn't have happened without that moment in time playing that music that just, it, it, it hit me so hard. After that big peak at about 11 and a half or 12 minutes, Mike and Paige kind of team up together. You have to listen a little exclusively. You have to listen a little harder for them to, to hear that they're doing it together. Trey joins in and it hit me at this point, really how nimble they are that it's like perfect team ball. It's like when, when you see like the, the mid nineties bulls playing basketball and you just, you never know who's going to be hot that night and you could pass to anyone and they're going to be the one to score. That's the image that came to my mind during the 13 or 14 minute point of this jam that everyone is on point but not all at the same time. And they are such good listeners to one another that they know who to hand it off to. And they'll, they'll take the lead for a while until it's time to sit back and hand it back to another player. And for this minute from about 13 minutes to 14 minutes, it's Mike and page together. Yeah. It's a really good observation. It's one of those things that like, I'll fully admit, like there are so many times I've listened to this version and I don't really do this with a lot of other jams, but there's so many times I'll listen to this and like when that, theme goes away i'll just rewind to listen to it again and again and again and it wasn't until recently that i was as we were leading up to this show i was listening to this set in full a couple of times just to kind of you know remind myself see if there were anything it was anything different i hadn't heard on previous listens and the thing that really stuck out to me was this segment from 13 to 14 minutes to recognize at the time because nobody knew what was to come but it sounds to me like this set but really this segment of the jam is a foreshadowing of where fisher's going to go with their jamming because something they really didn't do very well leading up to even in 2015 which is i absolutely adore that year they didn't post peak jam they would jam find a theme jam off that theme and then once the theme ended they would kind of fade out from the jam And one thing that makes this jam interesting and a lot of jams from 2017 to today so interesting is that they are so keen on finding a theme, exploring that theme, pushing that theme as far as it will go, and then figuring out what happens on the other side of the cliff. And they kind of distort the theme that they've been playing with and it gets a little demented. And that's where you get into really exciting music that like we've been hearing since the Baker's Dozen that to me is fish at its heart. And you, and you hear it early on, like a, like a 
an initial kind of experimentation into it in this ghost. It's funny you say that because you mentioned way earlier in this conversation that summer 95 is one of your favorite tours. And the way you just described it of developing a theme, playing around with the theme, modulating it. That's a lot of what they did in 1995, except now in 2016 and in 2021 and in 2017, they're so much smarter as musicians. They're so much more patient that it almost, it doesn't really sound like 1995, but that general outline is very similar at the end of ghost. They just kind of let it calm down until they get into light. It's not a ripcord. It's not even a segue really. It's just this song is over now. You know, we were done with this song. Yeah. And it's one of those things like I remember being in the show and, you know, it was around this point in the ghost, right? With a really melodic build that I love that I was like, oh my God, I think you're at a great show. You kind of have those moments <laughs> yeah. from time to time. And it was something like, like that with, with this ghost where I remember thinking like, okay, I think that they actually like, they're going for something big tonight and they, they feel confident and they could have followed that ghost up with anything. And in, in, if you go back to, it's hard for people who either have just been recently listening to fish or are only listening to a lot of recent fish when there haven't been a lot of great versions of light since 2018, it's hard to remember that when fish started playing light at any point in 2016, you knew you were pretty much guaranteed of an incredible version. Yeah. The jam and of the really, night, probably. Right. And and it's it's another jam that like you know when it leads into party time it, it's coming out of this kind of demented groove that they found that they start playing around with and that's where the magic starts to happen and it the encore is rock and roll into tweezer reprise so you must have walked out feeling right in your chest i would imagine just you know a gift of life considering what you had been going through yeah i mean it was one of those things that like going through any sort of trauma if you will um you know having a moment of kind of elation and like a a reassessment of you know your place in the world and and just like a moment of celebration and a break from all this sort of stuff um it it stayed with me for a long time you know a lot of really good fish shows stay with you i think I, i think you know you go on a fish run and you're gonna leave feeling like okay, I needed that, but also maybe, you know, if you didn't see a a great show, maybe being tired is something that like, you know, overwhelms you at that point in time. Um, Then there are those certain runs where you see like that kind of show and it just lingers with you and you kind of want to return to that. Like for me, um, as we moved into like deep winter and there was a lot going on in the world at the time that was very intense, we were, we were still dealing with a lot of like health ramifications and, you know, at that point, I had no idea that in a year and change, I was going to be moving out West. Um, having a moment like this was everything to me. Well, Brian Brickman, thank you so much for coming on and sharing that with you. If it's the mo- one of the most or the most meaningful show you've ever been to, then you've done your part in attending and <laughs> coming on attendance bias, because that is the heart of what we go for on this show. And thank you for coming on and sharing the story thank you, man. with, with me, with the audience, with anyone who is lucky enough to come across it before we uh, exit this, let's give you one more plug for everything. Let's see if I can remember and you'll have to plug in the <laughs> blanks because I don't have that great of a short-term memory. So you work as producer of the undermine podcast. You host in a sense, you kind of organize and put together the ravine 
there's the drop and I feel like I'm forgetting one. Am I forgetting? Uh, I'm also the producer for uh, 36 from the vault, but you got, you got, you got the majority of it. Thank you. Okay, good. And all of these are available on Osiris media. Yes. All the and wherever Osiris you get media. podcasts in general. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, thanks again for coming on, for sharing your story, for breaking down this awesome ghost. I appreciate it. And I hope we get to talk soon. Absolutely, man. This was great. Thank you so much. And that's it for today's conversation with Brian Brinkman of Osiris Media. As you can tell, Brian is a very studious Fish fan. He's the sort of fan who takes the band and their music very seriously. I do as well, but it was really humbling to speak with him uh, about someone who's so steady and even-voiced about Fish. Considering that, Brian obviously knows his stuff, and when talking about the band and this jam and his own history, he threw out a lot of different dates, a lot of different shows, a lot of different songs, and some statistics that we just needed to go back and double check. So now it's time for the Attendance Bias Fact Check. Attendance Bias Fact Check. First, Brian said that one of the first ways he got into fish was when his mom bought him Bittersweet Motel in the spring of 2001. I was time traveling back to when Bittersweet Motel was first released while he was speaking, and I said that it was a curious choice because maybe the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus had been recently released and that might have been a more traditional purchase. But my memory was playing tricks on me since the Rolling Stones concert was actually released in October of 1996. When we were speaking about seating charts and venue websites, the correct website that I mentioned is aviewfrommyseat.com. On that site, people upload pictures of their seats with the section, row, and seat number labeled. So always check that out before you commit to a purchase if you want to make sure you're getting the view that you want. When listing rarities and highlights that were played during the 2016 New Year's Eve run, Brian and I paused just kind of to giggle at the appearance of Secret Smile on the December 29th, 2016 set list. That track appears on the Undermind album. It's only been played nine times in the history of Fish, and it's a slow ballad that if you look up some reviews, it's pretty harshly maligned by fans, but I happen to enjoy it. In that same conversation about the 2016 New Year's Eve run, I said I would check to see if Don't Bogart That Joint had been played since New Year's 2016, and I was right, it hasn't been. And when discussing the first set of this show, Brian made it a point to mention how You Enjoy Myself rarely closes a first set. He also mentions that he couldn't remember the last time they did that before December 30th, 2016. I checked, and according to Fish.net, the answer is they last closed set one with You Enjoy Myself on July 27th, 2014 at Merriweather Post. Coincidentally, that show was a topic of conversation on attendance bias with our friend Tim of Wook Plus. And finally, in what I have to imagine is a simple slip of his tongue, Brian referred to the Holy Ghost on December 30th, 2010. That incredible version of Ghost was actually played the next night on New Year's Eve, December 31st, 2010. And that's it for today's episode of Attendance Bias. I'd like to thank Brian Brinkman of Osiris Media for coming on to talk about this version of Ghost. I'd like to thank Osiris Media as a whole for being so generous with their time over these last few months and producing such high-quality work. I'd like to thank Fish.net for the fact check, as well as Fish.in, Fishin, for the use of today's recording. 
And if you enjoy Attendance Bias, please, please, please leave a rating and a review on your favorite podcast app. You can also reach out and find me on social media, most likely on Twitter and Instagram. Reach out, say hello, and I'll send you a free sticker. And finally, the most important, thanks to you, everybody, for listening to Attendance Bias. Thanks again, and I will see you next week.